Welcome back to the Hemingway List. Year of War and Peace, I'm back home for my holiday. I've been at Wilson's Prom for four days. My God, what a beautiful part of the world. If you don't know Wilson's Prom, you should maybe, I don't know, Google image it. It is just beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, so that's been good. little refresh. Last night, very frustrated to find out that dom- my domain <laughs> had been essentially like nabbed by domain poachers. Um, to say I was furious about losing the HemingwayList.com. Uh, furious would be an understatement, I think. I was just livid. But only for, you know, an hour or two. And then I thought, you know, I'm not going to let this ruin the last day of my holiday. And I tried to chillax about it a bit. But essentially what happened is Crazy Domains, who I had the domain through, allowed it to expire without letting me know. And then they put it on a sister company thing that they have. I can't remember the name of it. But they also own a a domain auction site where they auction off popular domains. So what they did is they um, put it straight onto there without telling me and they auctioned it to someone else, quote unquote, someone else. They didn't tell me that it was going online on auction. So, you know, you'd think that if they really wanted to auction a, a URL, they would maybe tell the person who currently owns it that it's on auction. You know, if they want bidders, that would make sense. But no, they didn't tell me. Anyway, quote unquote, someone bought it. And then also, oh, look at this. This website also happens to offer brokerage to negotiate a deal with URL owners to buy them back for several thousand dollars. So what what basically happened is Crazy Domains sold my domain to themselves and then asked if I would like to broker a deal to buy it back for several thousand dollars. Also, I would have had to pay the broker. So they just tried to gouging money left, right and center unbelievable it's just so unethical and so dodgy so don't ever use crazy domains i'll be removing all my domains that i have through them and going with someone else on that note what i've done i've started a process of fixing this problem i haven't um it hasn't gone live yet but i've purchased the hemingwaylist.com.au right so that will be the new url just got to add the au at the end you know the australian denomination kind of makes sense to me it's the next best thing so that'll be the new url hopefully i'll get that up and live in the next you know two or three days i've got a few days week work this week which might get in the way of getting that up and running but yeah within a week that'll be the new domain until then it's just um a year of war and peace just search for it on uh, on podbean or on a podcasting app should be able to find it ah anyway um so that's that very very annoying but let's push on let's talk about what we're here to talk about book one chapter 17 natasha is ready to be a grown-up well at least she reckons the count has the moves impressive moves by the count says little sebastian and there's a link on here which i'm assuming is it's daniel cooper the dance it's just a very Russian dance what I'm watching right now. And this is the song. Okay, cool, fair enough. <laughs> well, if you're wondering what the song sound is like, it's something like that. And um, just very Russian looking, kind of prancing around on a stage. Thanks for finding that, little Sebastian. That, that YouTube clip is from 2009. Isn't that amazing? It's a 
What's that? 12-year-old clip now. Crazy. Stradivarius Kazoo said, I love how every single comment on that video is just from people who were reading the book and wondered how to picture Count Rostov's moves. <laughs> it's such a good description of the dance, isn't it? It's, it's difficult to describe something like a song or a dance in um, just using kind of literary narrative. Um, but he's done a great job of it there, Tolstoy. You really feel like the, that kind of increasing momentum up and up and up um, in the way he writes it as well. And you feel like you're there with them as it's getting more and more kind of crazed. Literature fan says, it seems like this was really the calm before the storm of war. Reminds me a lot of Gone with the Wind, when high society was having balls and living it up with true understanding for the hardships that are to come. Tolstoy does do a fantastic job, though, capturing this beautiful moment of merriment. Reading about this gets gathering... This gathering gives me the feeling of opening a time capsule and certain longing to be present at that moment in time. Yeah, I'll tell you what was a great companion to War and Peace. This is weird. Okay, bear with me here. But, um... Downton Abbey is a great companion. If you're really enjoying this, you'll enjoy Downton Abbey, I think. It's the British equivalent, I suppose. I loved it. Um, and even though it's set, you know, a hundred years later, it does sort of give you a bit of a feel of like the protocol and stuff. You know, it's a hundred years later in a different country, but still, it's the aristocracy, you know. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, it's very entertaining. Uh, okay, what was I saying? I was going to say something. Oh, yeah, about the war. About the war. War's coming. Obviously, this book is about war and peace. We're in peace times now. I think I said this already, but peace, think of the word peace more of, as society, war and society. And we're in society at the moment. We'll go to war soon enough. War, the war parts you would expect to be more exciting, but often you'll hear people with war and peace say that they prefer the peace scenes. And that's such a weird thing, I think. Um, and I, I kind of get it too. I think the thing with the war scenes is some of the most beautiful moments in this book and the most vivid moments are in the war scenes, for sure. And some of the most exciting moments, some of the most engaging. But also there is quite a lot of kind of military... Um, strategy and that kind of thing which does get a bit dry and you wouldn't expect the war scenes to be dry but yeah at certain points of the book you kind of end up longing to go back to the excitement of society over the war so just something to be mindful of as mindful of as we get closer to the war this book has its ups and downs but you know great book grumpy shakespearean says natasha is either very childish or very adult and there's never an in-between I feel like the oscillates between the two halves to a much more pronounced degree than the average 12-year-old. Sometimes she's playing with dolls and sometimes she's diffusing a situation with Sonia and dancing with Pierre. Am I the only one who suspects she will get a crush on Pierre at some point? She called him very funny to Sonia, said she was having a marvellous time sitting next to him at dinner and then danced with him. My theory is that she will enjoy feeling grown up with him and end up liking him a bit. Natasha is one of my favorite characters in the book. Maybe my favorite character. And I love how she's so charming, but also um, she's no um, 
Mary Sue, or what's it called in literary terms when a girl's just sort of too perfect? Um, she's not perfect, you know, she's got her flaws, but charming through those flaws, you know. And in fact, her charmingness might even be the cause of some of her flaws, as we'll see as we go through the book. That's my theory, at least. Ah, Bartleby said, What Natasha is going through seems to me a fairly normal coming-of-age experience. She's trying to interact with the social conventions she's witnessed all her life. She wants the respect of Maya and is sharp enough to know how to flirt with the edge of polite convention but not fall over. I think this passage when she sits with Pierre is very telling. In view of everyone, she was sitting and talking with him like a grown-up lady. In one hand, she had a fan that one of the ladies had given her to hold, and assuming the pose of a woman of the world, heaven knows when and where she had learned it, excuse me, fanned herself. Yeah. it's what it's, You see that a lot with kids when they do something new, you know, like a kid that you know, and when they do something, or they'll use an expression, and you just go, where did you hear that? Where did you learn to do that? And I can really feel that with that moment when her parents looked and they were like, get a look at Natasha. And she's like fanning herself in society and, you know, being all ladylike. And that feeling of like, when when did she pick up this behavior? You know, um, it's so relatable. I love how relatable this book is. So many years later. Uh, Sufjan Fan said... I remember last time I went through this, no one on the sub could trace down any music for the Daniel Cooper. Did anyone find it or is it lost forever? Well, I think that clip that we looked at before was the Daniel Cooper. So there you go. Um, Line. Okay. Line comparison from Zukov. Maud. I'm afraid of mixing the figures, Pierre replied. But if you will be my teachers and lowering his arm, big arm, he offered it to the slender little girl. Briggs, I'm afraid I can never get the figures right, said Pierre, but if you'll be my teacher, and he reached down to offer his big arm to the tiny little girl. PNV, I'm afraid I'll confuse the figures, said Pierre, but if you'd like to be my teacher, and lowering his fat arm, he offered it to the slender girl. Uh, okay, I'll find you now the, um, I'll find you the Andalus version. Where are we here? Uh, what chapter was it? 20... Oh, I don't know, 20? Yeah, 20. Oh man, it's a long chapter. I don't know if I'll be able to find it. Okay, I can't find it. And... Wait, I think I've nearly found it. Yep, Mama told me to ask you to come dance. Oh man, I'll bugger it all up though. Alright, but you've got to be my teacher, okay? And he lowered his massive arm, offering it to the slender little girl. There you go. Sorry that took so long to find. Um, yeah, P and V did a good job there. Fat arm. <laughs> um, what I've noticed with P and V now that I have it and I have Maud is that I think I'm 99% sure that P and V did not translate it from Russian to English, that they just took Maud and reworded it. I'm nearly certain that that's what they've done. Because anytime there's a word that I'm not sure about in a sentence, that word will remain completely intact in the PNV one, and they'll just rearrange the rest of the sentence around it. I think, 
Oh, that's what I would have done. <laughs> like, if I don't know what the word is, I can't find a synonym. So I'll just use the word that Maud used, you know, or like a phrase or whatever. All right, let's keep reading, hey? What do you reckon? What do you reckon? This has been a long podcast. I had to have a rant about my domain provider, though, so, you know. All right, uh, chapter 21. Let me just double check. Okay, here, this one ends with them saying, what a Daniel Cooper. Yep, cool. 21 goes like this. It was late. The Rostovs were dancing their six anglais. The music was getting sloppy now because the musos were all dead tired and the servants were tired too, but they continued cooking and serving food. Meanwhile, Count Bezikov had another stroke. His sixth. The doctors reckoned he was cactus now, really. They did the usual religious things, a confession, though he was incapable of speech, a communion and preparations for his unction. In a weird way, there was lots of excitement in his house. Outside the house, beyond the gates, a group of undertakers lay in wait, hiding whenever a carriage approached, ready to snap up an important and expensive funeral order. The military governor of Moscow, who had very kindly sent aides to camp to check in on the dying count, rocked up himself that night to bid a final farewell to the celebrated grandee of Catherine's court, Count Bezikov. The Count's reception room, as posh as all get out, was crowded. Everyone stood up respectfully when the military governor, after having been alone with the Count for about half an hour, passed through on his way out. Briefly acknowledging their bows while trying to escape the eyes of the doctors, clergy, and relatives that were fixed on him. Prince Vasily, who by now was getting ragged and pale, ragged and pale from stress, escorted him to the door, repeating something to him a few times in a low voice. By the time the military governor had gone, Prince Vasily was in need of a breather. He found some solace in the ballroom, sitting on a chair with one leg over the other leaning his elbow on his knee and covering his face with his hand. After sitting like this for a bit, he got up and looked around with sketchy eyes, moved with unusually fast steps down the long corridor leading back to the house to the rooms of the oldest princess. The people in the dimly lit reception room spoke in nervous whispers and whenever anyone went into or came from the dying man's room, silently gazed expectantly at the door as it creaked open. The limits of human life are fixed and may not be overpassed, said an old priest to a lady sat beside him. She was listening naively to his words. Do you reckon it's too late to do an unction on him? asked the lady, adding the priest's clerical title as if she didn't have an opinion on the matter. Ah, madame, it's a great sacrament, replied the priest, slicking back his grizzled hair over his bald head. Wait, don't tell me that was... Was that the military governor? Was being asked at the other side of the room. He looks so young. Can you believe he's sixty-something? I heard the Count doesn't recognise anyone now. They're ready to do the unction for him. I knew someone who got unctioned seven times. The second princess had just come from the sick room. Her eyes were bloodshot from crying. She sat beside Dr Lorraine, who was sitting with accidental sexiness under a portrait of Catherine, leaning his elbow on one very lucky table. Beautiful, said the doctor, responding to a comment about the weather. Bloody beautiful weather, princess. And besides, in Moscow, you don't feel like you're in a big city. It feels like the country. Mm -hmm. I agree, 
replied the princess with a sigh. So is it okay for him to have something to drink? Lorraine thought about it. Has he had his medicine? Yep. The doctor looked at his watch. Take a glass of boiled water and add just a pinch, he indicated with his delicate fingers, of cream of tartar. There has never been a gas, a German doctor was saying, to an aide-de-camp, that one lifts after the third stroke. A, a case. A case? There's never been a case... I'll translate the German into English. That one lives after their third stroke. Geez, he took good care of himself, remarked an aide-de-camp. And who's getting all his money? He added in a whisper. You'd want to go begging, replied the German with a smile. Everyone looked at the door again as it creaked open. The second princess was heading back in with the drink she'd made following Lorraine's instructions. The German went up to Lorraine. Do you think he will last until morning? He asked, Germanly addressing Lorraine in very shitty French. Lorraine, pursing up his lips, waved a severely negative finger before his nose. Tonight, definitely, he replied quietly. He exerted some effort as he walked away to keep his smile modest, clearly proud to be the one who was best, who best understood the patient's condition. Meanwhile, Prince Vasily was entering the princess's room. He was gloomy and dark in this room, just two little lamps were burning before the icons and it smelled good, like flowers and burnt pastilles. The room was cramped. There was some furniture, cupboards, little fucking table thingy, shit like that. The quilt of a high white feather bed was showing behind a screen. A small dog started yapping. Is that you, cousin? She rose and smoothed her hair, which was, as usual, Ray Martin smooth, as if it had been lacquered with a varnish. Has something happened? she asked. I'm so terrified. No change, nah. I just wanted to pop my head in and talk business, Katish. Catherine muttered the prince, wearing wearily nabbing a seat on the chair she had just vacated. Love what you've done with the place, he remarked. Very cosy. Anyway, sit down, let's have a chat. I thought you were going to say, you know, she said, her stony expression remaining severe. She took a seat opposite the prince, ready to hear him out. I really hoped to sneak in a nap, she added. Well, my dear, he asked, taking her hand and shifting it downwards, as was his habit. That question, well, was enough. It referred to the whole conversation they'd already had. She looked at Prince Vasily, her body straight and rigid, and kind of too long for her legs. Her eyes blank, unemotional and grey. Then she shook her head and glanced up at the icons with a sigh. This might have been taken as an expression of sorrow and devotion or of weariness and a desire to not have this conversation right now. Prince Vasily understood it as the latter. Do you think I am loving this? This isn't easy for me either. I'm completely fucking knackered, but still, we've got to have this talk, Katish. It's serious. That was all he said. Then he stopped and his cheeks did a little dance, a nervous twitch first on the left then on the right, giving his face an ugly look about it which never graced his features while he was in the drawing room or with visitors. His eyes looked strange then, too. At one moment, they were cocky and sly, and the next they glanced round in alarm. The princess, holding her little pooch on her lap with her bony little hands, looked attentively into Prince Vasily's eyes, evidently trying to win this silent moment by not talking first, even if it meant an overnight stare-off. 
Well, you see, my dear princess and cousin, Catherine Semenova, continued Prince Vasily, sucking at stare-offs, and at a time like this, we really need to think of everything. We've got to consider the future for all of you, because I love all of you, like children of my own, as you know. He spoke with difficulty, struggling to speak on this theme. The princess, enthralled that her stare-off technique had worked, continued staring blankly at him. And of course, I need to think about my family, he continued, and he chose this moment to get all pissy at a little table thingy beside him and pushed it away. He avoided her eyes now. You know, Katish, that we, that is you and your sisters, Momotov, me and my wife, are the Count's only direct heirs. I know, I know, you don't want to talk about the inheritance. It's not easy for me either, but my dear, I'm getting old, nearly 60, and I really need to be prepared for anything. Did you know I've sent for Pierre? The Count? He pointed to the Count's portrait. Definitely demanded that Pierre be called. Now Prince Vasily was watching the princess for a reaction, trying to figure her out, but she was a hard one to read. He determined at last that she was either listening carefully to his words and considering their meaning, or she was simply looking at him. I just pray to God above, mon cousin, she replied, that he is merciful to him and lets him pass peacefully on. Yeah, yeah, passing peacefully, definitely, interrupted Prince Vasily impatiently, rubbing his bald head. Angrily, he pulled back towards him the little table thingy, even angrier than he had pushed it away. But, okay, let me cut to the chase here. The fact is, you and I both know that last winter the Count made a will, and in that will he left everything, not to us, his direct heirs, but to bloody Pierre. He's made wills, yeah, a few of them, remarked the princess quietly, but Pierre sure as shit ain't getting it the lot. He's illegitimate, it would never hold up. Yes, but what if he was legit, said Prince Vasily, becoming animated and clutching the little table thingy passionately as if it were his comrade now. What if the Count sent a letter to the Emperor to ask for Pierre to be made legit? The Count served many years for the Emperor. He'd grant that wish, no worries. The princess smiled in the way that people do when they think they know more than the person they're talking to, or perhaps when they're actively in denial that they are most likely about to get screwed out of millions. Yeah, well, I'll tell you more, said Prince Vasily, grabbing her hand. That letter was written, but he never sent it, and the emperor knew about it. The only question is, where's that letter now? Did it get destroyed? Because if not, it is possible... It is probably in with the Count's papers, and as soon as it is all over, and Prince Vasily gave a sigh here just in case she missed what all over implied, then his papers will be opened, and the letter will be delivered to the Emperor. Then he'll grant the petition, and boom, Pierre gets the lot. But then we wouldn't get our share, said the Princess, smiling ironically, as if Prince Vasily was a fool for not noticing the obvious flaw in his logic. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. My poor Katish, it's clear as day. If that letter still exists and the Emperor gets it, Pierre will get everything and we will get nothing. And if they've just been overlooked, the will and the letter, which is likely, then you'd surely know whereabouts they'd be and you've got to find them because... What next? The princess interrupted with a bitchy smile and without changing the expression in her eyes. You think I'm stupid because you think all women are stupid. 
but I'm not, eh? Because I know this much. An illegitimate son cannot inherit a, a bastard, she added, convinced that this translation of the word would convince Prince Vasily he was wrong. Well, really, Katish, don't you get it? You're not stupid, so how are you not following? If the Count has written a letter to the Emperor begging him to recognize Pierre as legitimate, then Pierre won't be just a dumb old Pierre anymore. He'll be the new Count Bezikov, and he will inherit everything. If that will and letter aren't destroyed, then you will get nothing but the warm and fuzzy feeling of having done your duty. That's what will happen. Can't you see that? I knew about the will already. You're not telling me anything new. And I also know that it's not valid, so it doesn't matter. And you, mon cousin, seem to think I'm a fucking idiot, said the princess with the expression women wear when they are trying to say something witty or bitchy. You know the one. Ugh. I'm surrounded by fucking idiots, thought Prince Vasily. My dear beautiful Princess Catherine Semenova, he began impatiently, I didn't come here to screw you over. I came here to help you. This conversation is in your best interest. This is what I'd say to a sister or a good, kind, true friend. For the tenth time, if the letter and will in Pierre's favour are still among the Count's papers, then they will find their way to the Emperor and you, my dear girl, and your sisters, will no longer be heiresses. If you don't believe me, then believe the family solicitor, Dmitri Onufrich. He agrees with me. Oh yeah, this got her. Suddenly her thin lips went as white as a white tail's ass. Her eyes didn't change, but when she spoke her voice was all wobbly from emotion. Fine, that's perfectly fine. If that's the case, I never wanted anything and I still don't want anything. She shooed the little dog off her lap and smoothed out her dress. If that's how he wants to thank me, to thank the people who have sacrificed everything just for his sake, she cried. That's beautiful. Absolutely fucking beautiful. Fine with me. I don't want anything from him anyway, Prince. Uh, maybe you don't, but you're not the only one this affects. Think about your sisters, replied Prince Vasily. But the princess ignored him. Ugh, I'm so stupid. I knew this ages ago. I knew it, but I forgot. Ages back I told myself not to expect anything in this house except nastiness, dickheadedness, deceit. I knew he'd end up a rat dog ass fucking piece of... Do you... Or do you not know where the will is, insisted Prince Vasily, his cheeks twitching like fresh roadkill. Uh, that's me, though, an absolute sucker. Why do I always believe in people? Why do I love them and sacrifice for them when only the biggest pricks end up succeeding? I know whose fault this is, too. The princess went to get up, but the prince held her hand. Suddenly she seemed murderous, like she considered the entire human race worthless. She looked angrily at Prince Vasily. There's still time, Katish. Remember, he wasn't himself when he wrote that letter. He was angry, confused, sick. And besides, he probably forgot he ever wrote it. Our duty is to fix the mistake of his, to ease his last moments by not letting him be such a rat dog and allowing him to die knowing that in the end he wasn't a total rat dog. A rat dog to the people who sacrificed everything for him, chimed in the princess, who again wanted to get up, but was still held by the hand. Even though he never cared for us, no, mon cousin, she added with a sigh, now I will remember not to expect any kind of reward or honour or justice, not in this shitty world of ours. The only way to get by in this world is to be a cruel and sneaky rat dog. Oh, come on now, be reasonable. I know you're a good person. Nope, that's it, I'm bad now, fuck it. 
Nah, come on. You're a good person in your heart, repeated the prince. You're a good friend, and I want you to think of me as a friend too. We're both good people. Don't let the bastards get you down. Let's just talk it out. Sensibly. There's still time. Maybe a day, maybe an hour. Either way, it's enough. Tell me everything you can about the will, mostly, where it is. You must know. We won't do anything dodgy with it. We'll just take it to show the Count. No doubt. He just forgot about it, and he'll want it destroyed immediately. You know, that all I'm trying to do is to carry out his true wishes. That's all I'm trying to do here. I'm just here to help him, and you. You know what? I get it. I just worked it all out. I know who the real rat dog is here. That's not the point, my dear. It's that protege of yours, Princess Anna Mikhailovna Drubetskaya, who I wouldn't even take as a housemaid. She's a notoriously vile little bitch. Well, let's not waste our time here. Don't you say shit to me. Last winter she weaseled her way in here and told the Count all these fucked up lies about us, especially about Sophie. I can't repeat them, but they made the Count ill. He wouldn't see us for a fortnight. That's when he wrote that unfair bullshit will. I just thought it wasn't valid, so who cares? So you know where it is then? Why have you wasted all this time? It's in the inlaid portfolio that he keeps under his pillow, said the princess, ignoring his question. Now I see it all clearly. If I have a sin, one great sin, it's that I hate that nasty bitch. The princess almost shrieked, now very riled up. Why does she come worming herself into our business anyway? I'll give her a piece of my mind. The time will come. Alrighty, there we go. Another chapter down. That was a fun one. I really enjoyed reading that. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Um, see, there was quite a lot of swearing in that, in the uh, Andrew Lewis version of that. But I didn't feel like they were very riled up and I don't feel like I overdid it. But uh, I don't know. If you're still listening to this podcast by now, you're used to the swearing. Let me know. Do you think it was too much? Are you okay with it? What do you reckon? Anyway, thanks for listening. I will see you tomorrow.